0: be to try to build a genie such that it would automatically present the user with a prediction about salient aspects of the likely outcomes of a proposed command, asking for confirmation before proceeding. Such a system could be referred to as a genie with a preview. But if this could be done for a genie, it could likewise be done for a sovereign. So again, this is not a clear differentiator between a genie and a sovereign supposing that a preview functionality could be created. The questions of whether, and if so, how to use it, are rather less obvious than one might think, notwithstanding the strong appeal of being able to glance at the outcome before committing to making it irrevocable reality. We will return to this matter later. The ability of one caste to mimic another extends to oracles too. A genie could be made to act like an oracle if the only commands we ever give it are to answer certain questions. An oracle, in turn, could be made to substitute for a genie if we asked the oracle what the easiest way is to get certain commands executed. The oracle could give us step-by-step instructions for achieving the same result as a genie would produce, or it could even output the source code for a genie. Similar points can be made with regard to the relation between an oracle and a sovereign. The real difference between the three castes, therefore, does not reside in the ultimate capabilities that they would unlock. Instead, the difference comes down to alternative approaches to the control problem. Each cast corresponds to a different set of safety precautions. The most prominent feature of an oracle is that it can be boxed. One might also try to apply domesticity motivation selection to an oracle. A genie is harder to box, but at least domesticity may be applicable. A sovereign can neither be boxed nor handled through the domesticity approach. If these were the only relevant factors, then the order of desirability would seem clear. An oracle would be safer than a genie, which would be safer than a sovereign, and any initial differences in convenience and speed of operation would be relatively small and easily dominated by the gains in safety obtainable by building an oracle. However, there are other factors that need to be taken into account. When choosing between castes, one should consider not only the danger posed by the system itself, but also the dangers that arise out of the way it might be used. A genie most obviously gives the person who controls it enormous power, but the same holds for an oracle. A sovereign by contrast, could be constructed in such way as to accord no one person or group any special influence over the outcome, and such that it would resist any attempt to corrupt or alter its original agenda. What is more, if a sovereign's motivation is defined using indirect normativity, a concept to be described in Chapter 13, then it could be used to achieve some abstractly defined outcome, such as Whatever is maximally fair and morally right without anybody knowing in advance what exactly this will entail this would create a situation analogous to a rawlsian veil of ignorance such a setup might facilitate the attainment of consensus help prevent conflict and promote a more equitable outcome another point which counts against some types of oracles and genies is that there are risks involved in designing a superintelligence to have a final goal that does not fully match the outcome that we ultimately seek to attain For example, if we use a domesticity motivation to make the superintelligence want to minimize some of its impacts on the world we might thereby create a system whose preference ranking over possible outcomes differs from that of a sponsor The same will happen if we build the AI to place a peculiarly high value on answering questions correctly or unfaithfully obeying individual commands. Now, if sufficient care is taken, this should not cause any problems. There would be sufficient agreement between the two rankings, at least insofar as they pertain to possible worlds that have a reasonable chance of being actualized, that the outcomes that are good by the AI standard are also good by the principle standard. But perhaps one could argue for the design principle that it is unwise to introduce even a limited amount of disharmony between the A.I.'s goals and ours. The same concern would of course apply to giving Sovereign's goals that do not completely harmonize with ours. Tool A.I.'s One suggestion that has been made is that we build the superintelligence to be like a tool rather than an agent. This idea seems to arise out of the observation that ordinary software, which is used in countless applications, does not raise any safety concerns even remotely analogous to the challenges discussed in this book. Might one not create tool AI that is like such software, like a flight control system, say, or a virtual assistant, only more flexible and capable? Why build a superintelligence that has a will of its own. On this line of thinking, the agent paradigm is fundamentally misguided. Instead of creating an AI that has beliefs and desires and that acts like an artificial person, we should aim to build regular software that simply does what it is programmed to do. This idea of creating software that simply does what it is programmed to do is, however, not so straightforward if the product being created is a powerful general intelligence. There is, of course, a trivial sense in which all software simply does what it is programmed to do. The behavior is mathematically specified by the code, but this is equally true for all casts of machine intelligence, tool AI or not. If instead, simply doing what it is programmed to do means that the software behaves as the programmers intended, then this is a standard that ordinary software very often fails to meet. Because of the limited capabilities of contemporary software, compared with those of machine superintelligence, the consequences of such failures are manageable, ranging from insignificant to very costly, but in no case amounting to an existential threat. However, if it is insufficient capability rather than sufficient reliability, that makes ordinary software existentially safe, then it is unclear how such software could be a model for a safe superintelligence. It might be thought that by expanding the range of tasks done by ordinary software, one could eliminate the need for artificial general intelligence. But the range and diversity of tasks that a general intelligence could profitably perform in a modern economy is enormous it would be infeasible to create special-purpose software to handle all of those tasks. Even if it could be done, such a project would take a long time to carry out. Before it could be completed, the nature of some of the tasks would have changed, and new tasks would have become relevant. There would be great advantage to having software that can learn on its own to do new tasks, and indeed, to discover new tasks in need of doing. But this would require that the software be able to learn, reason and plan, and to do so in a powerful and robustly cross-domain manner. In other words, it would require general intelligence. Especially relevant for our purposes is the task of software development itself. There would be enormous practical advantages to being able to automate this. Yet the capacity for rapid self-improvement is just the critical property that enables a seed AI to set off an intelligence explosion. If general intelligence is not dispensable, is there some other way of construing the tool AI idea so as to preserve the reassuringly passive quality of a humdrum tool? Could one have a general intelligence that is not an agent? Intuitively, it is not just the limited capability of ordinary software that makes it safe. It is also its lack of ambition. There is no subroutine in Excel that secretly wants to take over the world if only it were smart enough to find a way. The spreadsheet application does not want anything at all. It just blindly carries out the instructions in the program. What, one might wonder, stands in the way of creating a more generally intelligent application of the same type? An oracle, for instance which when prompted with a description of a goal would respond with a plan for how to achieve it in much the same way that Excel responds to a column of numbers by calculating a sum without thereby expressing any preferences regarding its output or how humans might choose to use it. The classical way of writing software requires the programmer to understand the task to be performed in sufficient detail to formulate an explicit solution process consisting of a sequence of mathematically well-defined steps expressible in code. In practice, software engineers rely on code libraries stocked with useful behaviors, which they can invoke without needing to understand how the behaviors are implemented, but that code was originally created by programmers who had a detailed understanding of what they were doing. This approach works for solving well-understood tasks and is to credit for most software that is currently in use. It falls short, however, when nobody knows precisely how to solve all of the tasks that need to be accomplished. This is where techniques from the field of artificial intelligence become relevant. In narrow applications, machine learning might be used merely to fine-tune a few parameters in a largely human-designed program. A spam filter, for example, might be trained on a corpus of hand-classified email messages in a process that changes the weights that the classification algorithm places on various diagnostic features. In a more ambitious application, the classifier might be built so that it can discover new features on its own and test their validity in a changing environment. An even more sophisticated spam filter could be endowed with some ability to reason about the trade-offs facing the user or about the contents of the messages it is classifying. In neither of these cases does the programmer need to know the best way of distinguishing spam from ham. Only how to set up an algorithm that can improve its own performance via learning, discovering or reasoning. With advances in artificial intelligence, it would become possible for the programmer to offload more of the cognitive labor required to figure out how to accomplish a given task. In an extreme case, the programmer would simply specify a formal criterion of what counts as success and leave it to the AI to find a solution. To guide its search, the AI would use a set of powerful heuristics and other methods to discover structure in the space of possible solutions. It would keep searching until it found a solution that satisfied the success criterion. The AI would then either implement the solution itself or, in the case of an oracle, Report the solution to the user. Rudimentary forms of this approach are quite widely deployed today. Nevertheless, software that uses AI and machine learning techniques, though it has some ability to find solutions that the programmers had not anticipated, functions for all practical purposes like a tool and poses no existential risk. We would enter the danger zone only when the methods used in the search for solutions become extremely powerful and general. That is, when they begin to amount to general intelligence, and especially when they begin to amount to superintelligence. There are at least two places where trouble could then arise. First, the superintelligence search process might find a solution that is not just unexpected, but radically unintended. This could lead to a failure of one of the types discussed previously perverse instantiation infrastructure profusion or mind crime it is most obvious how this could happen in the case of a sovereign or a genie which directly implements the solution it has found if making molecular smiley faces or transforming the planet into paperclips is the first idea that the superintelligence discovers that meets the solution criterion then smiley faces or paperclips we get But even an oracle, which, if all else goes well, merely reports the solution, could become a cause of perverse instantiation. The user asks the oracle for a plan to achieve a certain outcome, or for a technology to serve a certain function. And when the user follows the plan, or constructs the technology, a perverse instantiation can ensue, just as if the AI had implemented the solution itself. The second place where trouble could arise is in the course of the software's operation. If the methods that the software uses to search for a solution are sufficiently sophisticated, they may include provisions for managing the search process itself in an intelligent manner. In this case, the machine running the software may begin to seem less like a mere tool and more like an agent. Thus, the software may start by developing a plan For how to go about its search for a solution, the plan may specify which areas to explore first and with what methods, what data to gather, and how to make best use of available computational resources. In searching for a plan that satisfies the software's internal criterion, such as yielding a sufficiently high probability of finding a solution satisfying to the user-specified criterion within the allotted time, The software may stumble on an unorthodox idea. For instance, it might generate a plan that begins with the acquisition of additional computational resources and the elimination of potential interrupters, such as human beings. Such creative plans come into view when the software's cognitive abilities reach a sufficiently high level. When the software puts such a plan into action, an existential catastrophe may ensue. As the examples in Box 9 illustrate, open-ended search processes sometimes evin strange and unexpected non-anthropocentric solutions, even in their currently limited forms. Present-day search processes are not hazardous because they are too weak to discover the kind of plan that could enable a program to take over the world. Such a plan would include extremely difficult steps, such as the invention of a new weapons technology several generations ahead of the state of the art, or the execution of a propaganda campaign far more effective than any communication devised by human spin doctors. To have a chance of even conceiving of such ideas, let alone developing them in a way that would actually work, a machine would probably need the capacity to represent the world in a way that is at least as rich and realistic as as the world model possessed by a normal human adult though a lack of awareness in some areas might possibly be compensated for by extra skill in others This is far beyond the reach of contemporary AI and because of the combinatorial explosion which generally defeats attempts to solve complicated planning problems with brute force methods as we saw in chapter 1 the shortcomings of known algorithms Cannot realistically be overcome simply by pouring on more computing power. However, once the search or planning processes become powerful enough, they also become potentially dangerous. Instead of allowing agent like purposive behavior to emerge spontaneously and haphazardly from the implementation of powerful search processes, including processes searching for internal work plans and processes directly searching for solutions, meeting some user-specified criterion, it may be better to create agents on purpose. Endowing a superintelligence with an explicitly agent-like structure can be a way of increasing predictability and transparency. A well-designed system, built such that there is a clean separation between its values and its beliefs, would let us predict something about the outcomes it would tend to produce. Even if we could not foresee exactly which beliefs the system would acquire, or which situations it would find itself in, there would be a known place where we could inspect its final values, and thus the criteria that it will use in selecting its future actions and in evaluating any potential plan. Box 9 Strange Solutions from Blind Search even simple evolutionary search processes sometimes produce highly unexpected results, solutions that satisfy a formal user defined criterion in a very different way than the user expected or intended. The field of evolvable hardware offers many illustrations of this phenomenon. In this field, an evolutionary algorithm searches the space of hardware designs, testing the fitness of each design by instantiating it physically on a rapidly reconfigurable array, or motherboard. The evolved designs often show remarkable economy. For instance, one search discovered a frequency discrimination circuit that functioned without a clock, a component normally considered necessary for this function. The researchers estimated that the evolved circuit was between one and two orders of magnitude smaller than what a human engineer would have required for the task. The circuit exploited the physical properties of its components in unorthodox ways. Some active, necessary components were not even connected to the input or output pins. These components instead participated via what would normally be considered nuisance side effects, such as electromagnetic coupling or power supply loading. Another search process tasked with creating an oscillator was deprived of a seemingly even more indispensable component, the capacitor. When the algorithm presented its successful solution, the researchers examined it and at first concluded that it should not work. Upon more careful examination, they discovered that the algorithm had, MacGyver-like, reconfigured its sensorless motherboard into a makeshift radio receiver using the printed circuit board tracks as an aerial to pick up signals generated by personal computers that happened to be situated nearby in the laboratory. The circuit amplified this signal to produce the desired oscillating output. In other experiments, evolutionary algorithms designed circuits that sensed whether the motherboard was being monitored with an oscilloscope or whether a soldering iron was connected to the lab's common power supply. These examples illustrate how an open-ended search process can repurpose the materials accessible to it in order to devise completely unexpected sensory capabilities by means that conventional human design thinking is poorly equipped to exploit or even account for in retrospect. The tendency for evolutionary search to cheat or find counterintuitive ways of achieving a given end is on display in nature too, though it is perhaps less obvious to us there because of our already being somewhat familiar with the look and feel of biology, and thus being prone to regarding the actual outcomes of natural evolutionary processes as normal, even if we would not have expected them, ex ante. But it is possible to set up experiments in artificial selection where one can see the evolutionary process in action outside its familiar context. In such experiments, researchers can create conditions that rarely obtain in nature, and observe the results. For example, prior to the 1960s, it was apparently quite common for biologists to maintain that predator populations restrict their own breeding in order to avoid falling into a Malthusian trap. Although individual selection would work against such restraint, it was sometimes thought that group selection would overcome individual incentives to exploit opportunities for reproduction and favor traits that would benefit the group or population at large. Theoretical analysis and simulation studies later showed that while group selection is possible in principle, it can overcome strong individual selection only under very stringent conditions that may rarely apply in nature. But such conditions can be created in the laboratory when flower beetles, Tribolium castaneum, were bred for reduced population size, by applying strong group selection, evolution did indeed lead to smaller populations. However, the means by which this was accomplished included not only the benign adaptations of reduced fecundity and extended developmental time that a human, naively anthropomorphizing evolutionary search might have expected, but also an increase in cannibalism. Comparison It may be useful to summarize the features of the different system casts we have discussed. Table 11 Further research will be needed to determine which type of system would be safest. The answer might depend on the conditions under which the AI would be deployed. The Oracle cast is obviously attractive from a safety standpoint, since it would allow both capability control methods and motivation selection methods to be applied. It might thus seem to simply dominate the sovereign caste which would only allow motivation selection methods except in scenarios in which the world is believed to contain other powerful superintelligences in which case social integration or anthropic capture might apply. However an oracle could place a lot of power into the hands of its operator who might be corrupted or might apply the power unwisely whereas a sovereign would offer some protection against these hazards. The safety ranking is therefore not so easily determined. A genie can be viewed as a compromise between an oracle and a sovereign, but not necessarily a good compromise. In many ways, it would share the disadvantages of both. The apparent safety of a tool AI, meanwhile, may be illusory. In order for tools to be versatile enough to substitute for superintelligent agents, they may need to deploy extremely powerful internal search and planning processes. Agent-like behaviors may arise from such processes as an unplanned consequence. In that case, it would be better to design the system to be an agent in the first place, so that the programmers can more easily see what criteria will end up determining the system's output. Chapter 11 Multipolar Scenarios We have seen, particularly in Chapter 8, how menacing a unipolar outcome could be, one in which a single superintelligence obtains a decisive strategic advantage and uses it to establish a singleton. In this chapter, we examine what would happen in a multipolar outcome, a post-transition society with multiple competing superintelligent agencies. Our interest in this class of scenarios is twofold. First, as alluded to in Chapter 9, social integration might be thought to offer a solution to the control problem. We already noted some limitations with that approach, and this chapter paints a fuller picture. Second, even without anybody setting out to create a multipolar condition as a way of handling the control problem, such an outcome might occur anyway. So what might such an outcome look like? The resulting competitive society is not necessarily attractive, nor long-lasting. In singleton scenarios, what happens post-transition depends almost entirely on the values of the singleton. The outcome could thus be very good, or very bad, depending on what those values are. What the values are depends in turn on whether the control problem was solved and, to the degree to which it was solved, on the goals of the project that created the singleton. If one is interested in the outcome of singleton scenarios, therefore, one really only has three sources of information. Information about matters that cannot be affected by the actions of the singleton, such as the laws of physics. Information about convergent instrumental values, and information that enables one to predict or speculate about what final values the singleton will have. In multipolar scenarios, an additional set of constraints comes into play. Constraints having to do with how agents interact. The social dynamics emerging from such interactions can be studied using techniques from game theory, economics, and evolution theory. Elements of political science and sociology are also relevant, insofar as they can be distilled and abstracted from some of the more contingent features of human experience. Although it would be unrealistic to expect these constraints to give us a precise picture of the post-transition world, they can help us identify some salient possibilities and challenge some unfounded assumptions. We will begin by exploring an economic scenario characterized by a low level of regulation, strong protection of property rights, and a moderately rapid introduction of inexpensive digital minds. This type of model is most closely associated with the American economist Robin Hanson, who has done pioneering work on the subject. Later in this chapter, we will look at some evolutionary considerations and examine the prospects of an initially multipolar post-transition world subsequently coalescing into a singleton of horses and men general machine intelligence could serve as a substitute for human intelligence not only could digital minds perform the intellectual work now done by humans but once equipped with good actuators or robotic bodies machines could also substitute for human physical labor suppose that machine workers which can be quickly reproduced, become both cheaper and more capable than human workers in virtually all jobs. What happens then? Wages and unemployment. With cheaply copyable labour, market wages fall. The only place where humans would remain competitive may be where customers have a basic preference for work done by humans. Today, Goods that have been handcrafted or produced by indigenous people sometimes command a price premium. Future consumers might similarly prefer human-made goods and human athletes, human artists, human lovers, and human leaders to functionally indistinguishable or superior artificial counterparts. It is unclear, however, just how widespread such preferences would be. If machine-made alternatives were sufficiently superior, perhaps they would be more highly prized. One parameter that might be relevant to consumer choice is the inner life of the worker providing a service or product. A concert audience, for instance, might like to know that the performer is consciously experiencing the music and the venue. Absent phenomenal experience, the musician could be regarded as merely a high-powered jukebox albeit one capable of creating the three-dimensional appearance of a performer interacting naturally with the crowd. Machines might then be designed to instantiate the same kinds of mental states that would be present in a human performing the same task. Even with perfect replication of subjective experiences, however, some people might simply prefer organic work. Such preferences could also have ideological or religious roots. Just as many Muslims and Jews shun food prepared in ways they classify as haram or treif, so there might be groups in the future that eschew products whose manufacture involved unsanctioned use of machine intelligence. What hinges on this? To the extent that cheap machine labor can substitute for human labor, human jobs may disappear. Fears about automation and job loss are of course not new. Concerns about technological unemployment have surfaced periodically, at least since the Industrial Revolution. And quite a few professions have in fact gone the way of the English weavers and textile artisans, who in the early 19th century united under the banner of the folkloric General Ludd to fight against the introduction of mechanized looms. Nevertheless, although machinery and technology have been substitutes for many particular types of human labor, Physical technology has on the whole been a complement to labor. Average human wages around the world have been on a long-term upward trend, in large part because of such complementarities. Yet what starts out as a complement to labor can at a later stage become a substitute for labor. Horses were initially complemented by carriages and plows, which greatly increased the horse's productivity. Later. Horses were substituted for by automobiles and tractors. These later innovations reduced the demand for equine labor and led to a population collapse. Could a similar fate befall the human species? The parallel to the story of the horse can be drawn out further if we ask why it is that there are still horses around. One reason is that there are still a few niches in which horses have functional advantages. For example, police work. But the main reason is that humans happen to have peculiar preferences for the services that horses can provide, including recreational horseback riding and racing. These preferences can be compared to the preferences we hypothesized some humans might have in the future, that certain goods and services be made by human hand. Although suggestive, this analogy is, however, inexact since there is still no complete functional substitute for horses. If there were inexpensive mechanical devices that ran on hay and had exactly the same shape, feel, smell and behavior as biological horses, perhaps even the same conscious experiences, then demand for biological horses would probably decline further. With a sufficient reduction in the demand for human labor, wages would fall below the human subsistence level. The potential downside for human workers is therefore extreme. Not merely wage cuts, demotions or the need for retraining, but starvation and death. When horses became obsolete as a source of movable power, many were sold off to meat packers to be processed into dog food, bone meal, leather, and glue. These animals had no alternative employment through which to earn their keep. In the United States, there were about 26 million horses in 1915. By the early 1950s, 2 million remained. Capital and Welfare One difference between humans and horses is that humans own capital. A stylized empirical fact is that the total factor share of capital has for a long time remained steady at approximately 30%, though with significant short-term fluctuations. This means that 30% of total global income is received as rent by owners of capital, the remaining 70% being received as wages by workers. If we classify AI as capital, then with the invention of machine intelligence that can fully substitute for human work, wages would fall to the marginal cost of such machine substitutes which, under the assumption that the machines are very efficient would be very low far below human subsistence level income the income share received by labor would then dwindle to practically nil but this implies that the factor share of capital would become nearly 100% of total world product since world GDP would soar following an intelligence explosion because of massive amounts of new labor-substituting machines, but also because of technological advances achieved by superintelligence and, later, acquisition of vast amounts of new land through space colonization. It follows that the total income from capital would increase enormously. If humans remain the owners of this capital The total income received by the human population would grow astronomically, despite the fact that in this scenario, humans would no longer receive any wage income. The human species as a whole could thus become rich beyond the dreams of avarice. How would this income be distributed? To a first approximation, capital income would be proportional to the amount of capital owned. Given the astronomical amplification effect, even a tiny bit of pre-transition wealth would balloon into a vast post-transition fortune. However, in the contemporary world, many people have no wealth. This includes not only individuals who live in poverty, but also some people who earn a good income or who have high human capital but have negative net worth. For example, in affluent Denmark and Sweden, Thirty percent of the population report negative wealth, often young, middle class people with few tangible assets and credit card debt or student loans. Even if savings could earn extremely high interest, there would need to be some seed grain, some starting capital in order for the compounding to begin. Nevertheless, even individuals who have no private wealth at the start of the transition could become extremely rich. Those who participate in a pension scheme, for instance, whether public or private, should be in a good position, provided the scheme is at least partially funded. Have-nots could also become rich through the philanthropy of those who see their net worth skyrocket. Because of the astronomical size of the bonanza, even a very small fraction donated as arms would be a very large sum in absolute terms. It is also possible that riches— could still be made through work, even at a post-transition stage, when machines are functionally superior to humans in all domains, as well as cheaper than even subsistence-level human labour. As noted earlier, this could happen if there are niches in which human labour is preferred for aesthetic, ideological, ethical, religious or other non-pragmatic reasons. In a scenario in which the wealth of human capital holders increases dramatically, demand for such labor could increase correspondingly. Newly minted trillionaires or quadrillionaires could afford to pay a hefty premium for having some of their goods and services supplied by an organic, fair trade labor force. The history of horses again offers a parallel. After falling to two million in the early 1950s, the U.S. horse population has undergone a robust recovery. A recent census puts the number at just under 10 million head. The rise is not due to new functional needs for horses in agriculture or transportation. Rather, economic growth has enabled more Americans to indulge a fancy for equestrian recreation. Another relevant difference between humans and horses, beside capital ownership, is is that humans are capable of political mobilization. A human-run government could use the taxation power of the state to redistribute private profits, or raise revenue by selling appreciated state-owned assets, such as public land, and use the proceeds to pension off its constituents. Again, because of the explosive economic growth during and immediately after the transition, there would be vastly more wealth sloshing around making it relatively easy to fill the cups of all unemployed citizens. It should be feasible even for a single country to provide every human worldwide with a generous living wage at no greater proportional cost than what many countries currently spend on foreign aid. The Malthusian Principle in a Historical Perspective So far, we have assumed a constant human population. This may be a reasonable assumption for short timescales, since biology limits the rate of human reproduction. Over longer timescales, however, the assumption is not necessarily reasonable. The human population has increased a thousandfold over the past 9,000 years. The increase would have been much faster, except for the fact that throughout most of history and prehistory, the human population was bumping up against the limits of the world economy. An approximately Malthusian condition prevailed, in which most people received subsistence-level incomes that just barely allowed them to survive and raise an average of two children to maturity. There were temporary and local reprieves. Plagues, climate fluctuations, or warfare, intermittently culled the population and freed up land, enabling survivors to improve their nutritional intake and to bring up more children until the ranks were replenished and the Malthusian condition reinstituted. Also, thanks to social inequality, a thin elite stratum could enjoy consistently above subsistence income, at the expense of somewhat lowering the total size of the population that could be sustained. A sad and dissonant thought, that in this Malthusian condition, the normal state of affairs during most of our tenure on this planet It was droughts, pestilence, massacres, and inequality, in common estimation the worst foes of human welfare, that may have been the greatest humanitarians. They alone enabling the average level of well being to occasionally bop up slightly above that of life at the very margin of subsistence. Superimposed on local fluctuations, history shows a macro pattern of initially slow but accelerating economic growth. Fueled by the accumulation of technological innovations. The growing world economy brought with it a commensurate increase in global population. More precisely, a larger population itself appears to have strongly accelerated the rate of growth, perhaps mainly by increasing humanity's collective intelligence. Only since the Industrial Revolution, however, did economic growth become so rapid that population growth failed to keep pace. Average income thus started to rise, first in the early industrializing countries of Western Europe, subsequently in most of the world. Even in the poorest countries today, average income substantially exceeds subsistence level, as reflected in the fact that the populations of these countries are growing. The poorest countries now have the fastest population growth, as they have yet to complete the demographic transition to the low fertility regime that has taken hold in more developed societies. Demographers project that the world population will rise to about 9 billion by mid-century, and that it might thereafter plateau or decline as the poorer countries join the developed world in this low-fertility regime. Many rich countries already have fertility rates that are below replacement level. In some cases, far below. Yet there are reasons, if we take a longer view, and assume a state of unchanging technology and continued prosperity, to expect a return to the historically and ecologically normal condition of a world population that butts up against the limits of what our niche can support. If this seems counterintuitive, in light of the negative relationship between wealth and fertility that we are currently observing on the global scale, we must remind ourselves that this modern age is a brief slice of history and very much an aberration. Human behavior has not yet adapted to contemporary conditions. Not only do we fail to take advantage of obvious ways to increase our inclusive fitness, such as by becoming sperm or egg donors, but we actively sabotage our fertility by using birth control. In the environment of evolutionary adaptedness, a healthy sex drive may have been enough to make an individual act in ways that maximized her reproductive potential. In the modern environment, however, there would be a huge selective advantage to having a more direct desire for being the biological parent to the largest possible number of children. Such a desire is currently being selected for, as are other traits that increase our propensity to reproduce. Cultural adaptation, however, might steal a march on biological evolution. Some communities, such as those of the Hutterites or the adherents of the quiverful evangelical movement, have natalist cultures that encourage large families, and they are consequently undergoing rapid expansion. Population Growth and Investment If we imagine current socioeconomic conditions magically frozen in their current shape, The future would be dominated by cultural or ethnic groups that sustain high levels of fertility. If most people had preferences that were fitness-maximizing in the contemporary environment, the population could easily double in each generation. Absent population control policies, which would have to become steadily more rigorous and effective to counteract the evolution of stronger preferences to circumvent them, The world population would then continue to grow exponentially until some constraint, such as land scarcity or depletion of easy opportunities for important innovation, made it impossible for the economy to keep pace. At which point, average income would start to decline until it reached the level where crushing poverty prevents most people from raising much more than two children to maturity. Thus, the Malthusian principle would reassert itself like a dread slave master, bringing our escapade into the dreamland of abundance to an end and leading us back to the quarry in chains, there to resume the weary struggle for subsistence. This longer-term outlook could be telescoped into a more imminent prospect by the intelligence explosion. Since software is copyable, a population of emulations or AIs could double rapidly, over the course of minutes rather than decades or centuries, soon exhausting all available hardware. Private property might offer partial protection against the emergence of a universal Malthusian condition. Consider a simple model in which clans, or closed communities or states, start out with varying amounts of property and independently adopt different policies about reproduction and investment. Some clans discount the future steeply and spend down their endowment, whereafter their impoverished members join the global proletariat, or die if they cannot support themselves through their labor. Other clans invest some of their resources, but adopt a policy of unlimited reproduction. Such clans grow more populous until they reach an internal Malthusian condition in which their members are so poor that they die at almost the same rate as they reproduce at which point the clan's population growth slows to equal the growth of its resources. Yet other clans might restrict their fertility to below the rate of growth of their capital. Such clans could slowly increment their numbers, while their members also grow richer per capita. If wealth is redistributed from the wealthy clans to the members of the rapidly reproducing or rapidly discounting clans, whose children, copies or offshoots, through no fault of their own, were launched into the world with insufficient capital to survive and thrive, then a universal Malthusian condition would be more closely approximated. In the limiting case, all members of all clans would receive subsistence-level income, and everybody would be equal in their poverty. If property is not redistributed, prudent clans might hold on to a certain amount of capital and it is possible that their wealth could grow in absolute terms. It is, however, unclear whether humans could earn as high rates of return on their capital as machine intelligences could earn on theirs, because there may be synergies between labor and capital, such that a single agent who can supply both, e.g. an entrepreneur or investor who is both skilled and wealthy, can attain a private rate of return on her capital, exceeding the market rate obtainable by agents who possess financial but not cognitive resources. Humans, being less skilled than machine intelligences, may therefore grow their capital more slowly, unless of course the control problem had been completely solved. In which case, the human rate of return would equal the machine rate of return, since a human principal could task a machine agent to manage her savings, and could do so costlessly and without conflicts of interest. But otherwise, in this scenario, the fraction of the economy owned by machines would asymptotically approach 100%. A scenario in which the fraction of the economy that is owned by machines asymptotically approaches 100% is not necessarily one in which the size of the human slice declines. If the economy grows at a sufficient clip, then even a relatively diminishing fraction of it may still be increasing in its absolute size. This may sound like modestly good news for humankind. In a multipolar scenario in which property rights are protected, even if we completely fail to solve the control problem, the total amount of wealth owned by human beings could increase. Of course, this effect would not take care of the problem of population growth in the human population, pulling down per capita income to subsistence level, nor the problem of humans who ruin themselves. Because they discount the future. In the long run, the economy would become increasingly dominated by those clans that have the highest savings rates, misers who own half the city and live under a bridge. Only in the fullness of time, when there are no more opportunities for investment, would the maximally prosperous misers start drawing down their savings. However, if there is less than perfect protection for property rights, for example, If the more efficient machines, on net, succeed by hook or by crook in transferring wealth from humans to themselves, then human capitalists may need to spend down their capital much sooner before it gets depleted by such transfers, or the ongoing costs incurred in securing their wealth against such transfers. If these developments take place on digital rather than biological timescales, then the glacial humans might find themselves expropriated before they could say Jack Robinson. Life in an Algorithmic Economy Life for biological humans in a post-transition Malthusian state need not resemble any of the historical states of man as hunter-gatherer, farmer, or office worker. Instead, the majority of humans in this scenario might be idle rentiers who eke out a marginal living on their savings. They would be very poor, yet derive what little income they have from savings or state subsidies. They would live in a world with extremely advanced technology, including not only superintelligent machines, but also anti-aging medicine, virtual reality, and various enhancement technologies and pleasure drugs. Yet these might be generally unaffordable. Perhaps instead of using enhancement medicine, they would take drugs to stunt their growth and slow their metabolism in order to reduce their cost of living, fast burners being unable to survive at the gradually declining subsistence income. As our numbers increase and our average income declines further, we might degenerate into whatever minimal structure still qualifies to receive a pension. Perhaps minimally conscious brains in VATs Oxygenized and nourished by machines, slowly saving up enough money to reproduce by having a robot technician develop a clone of them. Further frugality could be achieved by means of uploading, since a physically optimized computing substrate, devised by advanced superintelligence, would be more efficient than a biological brain. The migration into the digital realm might be stemmed, however. If emulations were regarded as non-humans or non-citizens ineligible to receive pensions or to hold tax-exempt savings accounts, in that case, a niche for biological humans might remain open, alongside a perhaps vastly larger population of emulations or artificial intelligences. So far, we have focused on the fate of the humans, who may be supported by savings, subsidies, or wage income deriving from other humans who prefer to hire humans. Let us now turn our attention to some of the entities that we have so far classified as capital. Machines that may be owned by human beings, that are constructed and operated for the sake of the functional tasks they perform, and that are capable of substituting for human labor in a very wide range of jobs. What may the situation be like for these workhorses of the new economy? If these machines were mere automata, simple devices like a steam engine or the mechanism in a clock, then no further comment would be needed. There would be a large amount of such capital in a post-transition economy, but it would seem not to matter to anybody how things turn out for pieces of insentient equipment. However, if the machines have conscious minds, if they are constructed in such a way that their operation is associated with phenomenal awareness, or if they, for some other reason, are ascribed moral status, then it becomes important to consider the overall outcome in terms of how it would affect these machine minds. The welfare of the working machine minds could even appear to be the most important aspect of the outcome, since they may be numerically dominant. Voluntary Slavery, Casual Death A salient initial question is whether these working machine mines are owned as capital, brackets, slaves, or are hired as free-wage laborers. On closer inspection, however, it becomes doubtful that anything really hinges on the issue. There are two reasons for this. First, if a free worker in a Malthusian state gets paid a subsistence-level wage, he will have no disposable income left after he has paid for food and other necessities. If the worker is instead a slave, his owner will pay for his maintenance and again he will have no disposable income. In either case, the worker gets the necessities and nothing more. Second, suppose that the free laborer was somehow in a position to command an above subsistence level income, perhaps because of favorable regulation. How will he spend the surplus? Investors would find it most profitable to create workers who would be voluntary slaves, who would willingly work for subsistence-level wages. Investors may create such workers by copying those workers who are compliant. With appropriate selection, and perhaps some modification to the code, investors might be able to create workers who not only prefer to volunteer their labor, but who would also choose to donate back to their owners, any surplus income they might happen to receive. Giving money to the worker would then be but a roundabout way of giving money to the owner or employer, even if the worker were a free agent with full legal rights. Perhaps it will be objected that it would be difficult to design a machine so that it wants to volunteer for any job assigned to it, or so that it wants to donate its wages to its owner. Emulations, in particular, might be imagined to have more typically human desires. But note that even if the original control problem is difficult, we are here considering a condition after the transition. A time when methods for motivation selection have presumably been perfected. In the case of emulations, one might get quite far simply by selecting from the pre-existing range of human characters. The control problem May also in some ways be simplified by the current assumption that the new machine intelligence enters into a stable socio-economic matrix that is already populated with other law-abiding superintelligent agents. Let us then consider the plight of the working-class machine, whether it be operating as a slave or a free agent. We focus first on emulations, the easiest case to imagine. Bringing a new biological human worker into the world takes anywhere between 15 and 30 years, depending on how much expertise and experience is required. During this time the new person must be fed, housed, nurtured and educated at great expense. By contrast, spawning a new copy of a digital worker is as easy as loading a new program into working memory. Life thus becomes cheap a business could continuously adapt its workforce to fit demands by spawning new copies and terminating copies that are no longer needed to free up computer resources. This could lead to an extremely high death rate among digital workers. Many might live for only one subjective day. There are reasons other than fluctuations in demand why employers or owners of emulations might want to kill or end their workers frequently. If an emulation mind, like a biological mind, requires periods of rest and sleep in order to function, it might be cheaper to erase a fatigued emulation at the end of a day and replace it with a stored state of a fresh and rested emulation, as this procedure would cause retrograde amnesia for everything that had been learned during that day. Emulations performing tasks requiring long cognitive threads would be spared such frequent erasure. It would be difficult, for example, to write a book if each morning when one sat down at one's desk one had no memory of what one had done before. But other jobs could be performed adequately by agents that are frequently recycled. A shop assistant or a customer service agent, once trained, may only need to remember new information for 20 minutes. Since recycling emulations would prevent memory and skill formation, Some emulations may be placed on a special learning track where they would run continuously, including for rest and sleep, even in jobs that do not strictly require long cognitive threads. For example, some customer service agents might run for many years in optimized learning environments, assisted by coaches and performance evaluators. The best of these trainees would then be used like studs, serving as templates, from which millions of fresh copies are stamped out each day. Great effort would be poured into improving the performance of such worker templates, because even a small increment in productivity would yield